Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 84, being recorded on Friday, May 19th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason's been a little over maybe a week, week and a half since we have chatted. How, uh, how have things been? Have you been, how many cities have you hit since we, we last caught up? Yeah, I, this may be the first time I've been able to say this all year, but I have hit zero cities since we last chatted. I have been in home in Chicago for almost two straight weeks. Well, your wife must be pulling her hair out. She is. She's uh, She has uh, helpfully packed my suitcase and is uh, <laughs> e- eagerly awaiting my departure to the West Coast on uh, Monday morning. Put it right by the door there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So I guess we can't talk about any trip reports, any other um, things going on you, you want to highlight before we jump into it? I do. Uh, you know, we we like to talk about the fan mail we get on the show, uh, but I, I got some angry fan mail this week. Oh, not another angry fan. Well, it's always the same angry fan. Okay. Uh, Jason Delray of Recode. What did we do to enrage uh, Mr. Delray? Well, he's a he's a bad guy to have against you. So let's. He is. What's the argument? The old story about don't get in an argument with people that buy their ink by the the barrel and their <laughs> digital ink. Their digital ink. Their pixels by the barrel. <laughs> uh, so if you recall, last week we had a great conversation about uh, Amazon with Andrea, and the topic came up of Jet, and I. Uh, had mentioned that that Jason Delray um, had written an article that sort of implied that that perhaps Jet uh, closed, or, or I'm sorry, that uh, Amazon closed Quidzy um, out of uh, spite for Mark Laurie, uh, you know, who's now competing with him at Walmart. And so we had a little conversation about that, uh, and Jason uh, wrote me actually a very kind note. To clarify that I had I had sort of misrepresented his his position, and that um, uh, he certainly doesn't think that that Amazon closed Quincy because of Mark Lorry, but he does think uh, that some animosity for Mark Lorry might have played into uh, the communication around the closing of Quincy and the fact that they said like, well, we closed it because uh, uh, it was too difficult uh, or not possible to make it profitable, and so. So Jason's theory is more that like the communication may have been a little more uh, negative uh, as a result of the of the uh, Jeff Mark animosity than than the actual business case, and uh, I suspect that he's probably right. Like that certainly does make a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like uh, you know Amazon kind of crapped it, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They the uh, it, uh, Quizzy showed up on a crap report, and they and they shut her shut her down. Yep. Cool. Well, let's. Uh, there's been a ton of news in the industry, and as I always like to say, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some Amazon news. Amazon news. 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 Your 
your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, uh, Scott, it feels like there's a ton of uh, interesting stuff going on in Amazon this week. Uh, I think we we finally got uh, the announcement about Prime Day for this year, and I'm I'm struggling to even call it Prime Day because I think it's now Prime Days, plural. Yeah, Prime Day ish, Prime Day thirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they've a. Uh, um, and it's weird because they haven't announced anything, but you know, there's uh, several news reports picked up and said they're hearing from Amazon um, that it's going to be the week of July 10th uh, through 14th. Um, you know, I think a betting person would say the 11th. That's kind of where I'm going to put my money. Um, and then it's going this year. It's going to be 30 hours, which is kind of interesting. Which is like, you know, it's kind of random. It's a day in six hours. So I guess they're trying to pick up, you know, a, a nice 18 hour window and then. The, the six hour window when, when most folks are asleep and then pick up a morning uh, would be my guess. Yeah. It could, you know, you you could imagine they're just creeping it every, every year and then eventually it will be a, a like an always on promotion. Uh, yeah. It'll be 365 days of yeah. prime. Or a cynical person might say that they're making sure that they dramatically beat last year's sales numbers. Mm, yeah. That's uh that is you know, it should by its nature, since it's six hours longer, let's see, that's going to be uh, one, two, one, six. So it'll be 18% more just from hours. Exactly. Assuming a linear distribution. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> thanks for doing public math on the show. That's always impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah. This is why we have the ability to edit the shows. <laughs> I was just going to point out no editing involved, folks. <laughs> Uh, I think also somewhat exciting. We, we had talked about the, the likelihood that this was going to happen. Um, but Amazon had a nice little uptick in their stock and their valuation is now officially, uh, twice that of Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I haven't seen anyone else revisit it, but we're, we're perilously close to that point that I'd calculated again in real time on a show, uh, probably around midnight. Uh, so there's a little caveat there that, uh, Bezos would be, uh, close to number one richest person, kind of over a thousand. And, uh, the stock is kind of hovering up around the 965, 970. So, um, you know, we're, we're not too far away from when I think that could happen too. So we'll, we'll have to see, I think, a you know, some kind of a strong showing in Q2 or some kind of catalyst gets it over a thousand dollars. I think we'll, we'll kind of see some articles about that. Yeah, that, uh, that is going to be fun to watch regardless. That's a, a really high tax, um, income tax neighborhood, uh, with, with Jeff and uh, Bill Gates and up there. Yep. And Warren. And, uh, well, Warren doesn't live in that same neighborhood, does he? I meant, I meant within a mile and a half, you got, uh, two oh, guys paying a lot the, of income tax. I thought you meant the neighborhood of the yeah. top five on the the Fortune 500. No, I'm just saying that neighborhood the, in Seattle. The, that police force in uh, in uh, Seattle is well funded. Is what I'm thinking. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The PTA is is uh, the coffers are overflowing. Yeah, another interesting one is uh, this week was the 20th year anniversary of Amazon's IPO, and uh, you know when when that happens uh, with these success stories, you see all these interesting data points. And if you'd put a dollar in, uh, you know, for every dollar you invested in the IPO 20 years ago, it would each of those dollars would be worth 641 dollars today. So if you'd done a thousand, that would have been worth 641 thousand. And if you had done, you know, you can continue to do the math. Ten thousand would get you up to six. Um, 
million, and uh, that's why Jeff Bezos is at the heading towards the top of that list because he owns a lot of Amazon stock. He he invested a bunch of dollars in in that original IPO. He did. Yep. Uh, I feel like that's mostly true, but when you say uh, when you invest a dollar, you might get that. Uh, I would point out that back then you'd probably get a paper stock certificate, and and I would have lost the certificate, so I wouldn't have gained the money. But <laughs> even twenty years ago, the paper was really just placebo, and you're you're registered, and it's okay if you lose the paper. Oh, thank God! I, I was losing a lot of sleep over that. Yeah. So you should uh, you should actually check. There's every state has a place you go look to see if there are someone looking for you to deliver that lost share of Amazon stock. Luckily, uh, right after the Libyan prince, they're usually calling me, so I don't I don't have to look it up. <laughs> uh, it's an odd anniversary year for Amazon. It is also the uh, the anniversary of the Amazon one click patent. And the reason that's interesting is it's the the final year of the Amazon One Click patent, so that expires this year. Cool. Do you think we'll see a a rush of people kind of coming out with One Click now that they can? I suspect that we will. Like, I feel like you know, early on, Amazon like uh, exercised the patent fairly aggressively, and I think that you know they they got a uh, licensing fee from eBay. If I'm if I'm remembering right, but I feel like people had been skirting the line on that patent more and more in recent years. And so, you know, maybe it won't be a, a watershed moment, but uh, uh, I think in, in uh, uh, certain sites, it's certainly going to make sense. And so I, I do think we'll see more of that. No, I think eBay doesn't license it. That's why you have this weird kind of two phase commit. It's kind of like, you know, buy and then you have to kind of go through the PayPal flow. Um, and even, even as they've tried to integrate those things, there's there's still a two phase. Um, but Apple is one of the biggest licensees of one click. Oh, okay. So I may have remembered it wrong. I thought eBay was the company that that Apple actually prosecuted the pat or that Amazon prosecuted the patent again, and there was some settlement or something. But I must. I don't know. This will be a fun thing for listeners to to help us research. Um, yeah. I definitely know Apple licensed is a very large licensee. I don't know who Amazon sued or anything like that. Yeah. And so those guys, I'm certain, are looking forward to that patent expiring, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, And then there was also some news that it looks like Amazon is getting uh, more serious about a couple new categories, uh, furniture and potentially most interesting, the the pharma industry, the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And... um, you know what's what's fascinating about these rumors, uh, and none of these were Amazon announcements. I think they a lot of them come out of job postings. So the two I read kind of had read between the lines of job postings, and then talked to some Amazon sources. Um, but each of these days, so CVS uh, was down pretty materially the day the pharma news came out, and then Wayfair and a couple other furniture companies were down pretty substantially the days the furniture stuff came out. So um, you know it's kind of. Uh, it's really interesting over the last 20 years to see this arc. Like 20 years ago, everyone laughed at Amazon. And if they announced, we're going to come out and farm, everyone would be like, Pff. or they even, you know, they acquired drugstore.com and no one seemed to to care too much about it. Uh, oh, no, sorry. The other guys did. But they were an investor in drugstore.com and you know, were playing in that area and everyone scoffed. And now uh, when there's just a whiff that they're getting there, they put a job posting out, stocks go down 10, 20%. So it's pretty amazing how much they moved the needle here over the last 20 years. Yeah, that that alone is uh, very powerful. And both of these categories are interesting because, to your point, 
superficially, like there'd be a reason that both of these categories are difficult. And obviously there's a reason that neither one was the, the first category that Amazon went after. And there, you know, there's certainly going to be reasons that the legacy in that the incumbents in those two segments are saying, here's why we don't think Amazon will be as successful in our segment as they have been in all these other segments. And, and that of course, you know, uh, gets the hashtag famous last words. Um, but furniture is interesting because it's not likely that the, the enormous uh, fulfillment center infrastructure that Amazon has is very well suited to furniture. And so the, you know, there are some third parties that have built these, these furniture distribution networks. Um, and they often require like white glove deliveries and, you know, very regular size stuff. Um, and even the, the, Amazon has built a couple of distribution centers or fulfillment centers for for irregular size items, but they're really designed for things like big screen TVs, not necessarily sofas. Um, and so, if Amazon were to get really serious about furniture, it would be interesting to see if they would build a new fulfillment center infrastructure or how they would they would handle that that whole part of the the thing because it it doesn't seem they could leverage all the existing FCs. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one of the keys of the report. So some of the job postings are for four fulfillment centers that are going to be designated specifically furniture and appliance. Um, so so these are fulfillment centers we've known about, but they've never been kind of quote unquote tagged with that name. And and to your point, they've never, to my knowledge, I know they've got apparel fulfillment centers that have kind of steaming and ironing and kind of some very apparel. They they have a grocery footprint. They have a small item. They have a return footprint and they have a large item uh, that's largely used for large electronics. But this is the first time I've, I've kind of seen, you know, any fulfillment center tagged with furniture and appliance. Uh, and then certainly it sounds like they're building four. So, you know, that's pretty interesting um, and going to be a whole new, new, you know, footprint to see what they're doing. Yep. And that, that is a category that you'd look at and say has not been very digitally mature. A lot of the, the, the traditional furniture retailers would say like, Oh gosh, people aren't going to be able to, aren't going to buy furniture. if They can't come in and see it. And so they, ha- they've underinvested in, in digital and e-commerce. Um, there's certainly some exceptions out there. Uh, so that's an interesting category. And then potentially even more interesting is pharmacy, um, again, bunch of unique challenges about uh, the distribution network for that, and in that case, particularly the delivery and dispensing um, has has a lot of regulations attached to it. Uh, but but you talk about disruptions, uh, you know, you have you have three very large chains in in the U.S. Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS, um, and the. Something like sixty percent of the the revenue from all three of those chains is pharmacy, uh, so that literally is their reason for being. That drives all the trips to those stores, and then they hope to sell all the uh, all that stuff on the shelf as a, uh, a a serendipitous discovery when you're coming to the store to fill your your prescription. So so if if Amazon was able to disrupt pharmacy and and you know really really uh, own direct to to consumer. Uh, fulfillment for for pharmacy that that would be uh, you know those those chains could not survive without walk-in pharmacy yeah do you think the whole prescription thing and management of that is insurmountable or you think there's actually a a better customer experience to be had in there yeah no i think exactly the opposite i think it's inevitable that uh the majority of of prescriptions that people are going to want home delivery like it it just is a better experience it's a it's a chore to have to go 
pick that stuff up. Like there's a, a subset of that industry that you need kind of on-demand fulfillment. So you just had a medical procedure and you need to stop on your way home and and get some pain meds or something like that. But but the overwhelming majority of pharmacy are these uh, stuff that the majority of Americans now take for for chronic conditions. And so you're you're just taking it for your whole life. Uh, and it, it's a heck of a lot easier to have that stuff show up at your door. There's some really innovative uh, companies that are tackling individual markets. Like I think of Capsule in, in New York, for example. Um, and, you know, Amazon certainly has the resources to to go after that and, and solve it on a national basis. And, you know, if and when they do, uh, that that's going to be a scary moment for all the traditional drugstores. Yeah. Uh, another category that's interesting we haven't talked a lot about on the show, and I know um, it's kind of a hobby for both of us to follow this one, uh, and it's kind of the B2B industrial category. And um, just kind of the brief history here we, uh, on this, uh, we're going to do a deep dive because this is definitely a, a topic that we should go deeper on. But um, the the Amazon piece of this is, let's see, back in April, I think it was April of 2015, Amazon launched um, Amazon Business. They used to have the thing that preceded it was Amazon Supply, and it really signaled uh, that Amazon was getting pretty serious about B2B. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of the B2B players really kind of laughed and said, you know, we have this network of 8,000 stores, we have same day delivery, there's no way you'll be able to counteract that. And uh, what made me think of this is Granger, uh, which is one of the big players in this kind of B2B category in industrial uh, goods, uh, has had a really rough first quarter. So uh, it started out, they 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 missed their numbers uh, you know, worse than they ever have. And then uh, it took a while for them to kind of come out and explain what was going on. And they really just essentially said they've seen a seismic shift over to e-commerce. And they don't, I don't think they called out specifically, but reading between the lines, it sounds like Amazon's strategy has really taken root and it is causing them a, a world of hurt. Um, so uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting is when they came out and said kind of readjusted expectations, they said they now predict that over 80% of sales by 2021 will be online. And that caused analysts to take, uh, because they're so built out in the stores and all their margin is kind of you know, counts on people coming into the store. Uh, analysts came out and cut their whole long-term margin outlook by more than half. So, um, you know, that, that's there's there's definitely sea changes going on in that part of the market. We haven't had a ton of time to talk about it, and I think it warrants a deep dive. Yeah, we should totally dive into that. Uh, one other factor there that seems really scary for Granger. Uh, a lot of these B2B companies have contract pricing or negotiated pricing with each individual customer. So there's there tends to not be a public price. Um, and, uh, you know, they rely on price obfuscation. You're not knowing how much anyone else is paying for the goods. And so Granger's had an e-commerce site for a while, but they, they charge like the highest possible price on that e-commerce site. So the, you know, the, the customers uh, that were buying online were paying the highest price. And one of the other things that they announced is that they've had to dramatically, as, as all shoppers are shifting, not purchasing online, they're, they're price sensitive online. And so, to you know, obviously Amazon uh, has the exact opposite pricing philosophy. Um, so they've had to dramatically lower their prices. And so it's a double whammy. You say, like, wait a minute, all your stores are sh- all your sales are shifting online away from this huge investment in brick and mortar that you have. And you're having dr- dr- dramatically uh, reduced the margins you get for online sales. Um, you know, that doesn't give us a lot of confidence in your future. 
Yeah. The, the last one I want to talk about isn't really news, but it's kind of a trend. I just wanted to bounce off you and see if you're seeing the same thing. So, so, so in my role at channel advisor, I talk to brands all the time. Um, and you know, uh, I don't know the causality, but because I think we talk a lot about Amazon, uh, it comes up frequently. And the, the thing that's really interesting is, you know, the conversations have, have morphed over the years. It used to be, you know, what should our strategy be and that kind of thing. Now what I'm finding is in probably like the last 10 to 15 conversations I've had with brands, um, they're, they're really getting very serious about advertising on Amazon. And I haven't really seen this out in the press very much, but you know, uh, uh, I now hear that stat kind of come back to me that, that I use all the time. Um, and, uh, that, you know, more searches are done on Amazon than, uh, for products than other sites like Google. Uh, and I think Forrester was the first to service this like four or five years ago. And now there's several sources for the data. Um, so, uh, and so generally the conversation goes, yeah, you know, what we're doing is we're starting to spend a lot more on Amazon ad platforms and they, they effectively have two, they have AMS and AMA, and we can go into that on, we should probably do a deep dive on this too. Um, and certainly, you know, we've had guests like Andrea and Melissa Burdick talk about it uh, on the periphery. Um, but what's really interesting is what I'm seeing is this very quick life cycle where brands are starting to, they'll test. And then, and these are brands that, you know, they're, they're name brands. So they have a lot of marketing dollars already in all kinds of different buckets. Uh, and then very quickly after they do those tests, we're starting to see them slosh those ad dollars towards Amazon very rapidly. Um, you know, so some folks have moved north of 30, 40, 50% of their previously mostly Google ad dollars uh, over to Amazon. And it's because of the efficacy. So they can measure very easily how it is moving the needle on Amazon itself, but they're also seeing a very powerful spillover effect um, off Amazon. Um, it's hard to quantify that, and I've, I've talked to several about how they're doing it, and it's proprietary enough I, I don't want to go into it um, because they'll I think it would reveal who they are. But um, it, it's really fascinating to see this. And I, I, you know, I would not have guessed this would happen this quickly. And I'm just kind of wondering, are, are you seeing the same thing and hearing the same discussions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it feels like for a couple of reasons, like certainly one is there, there is this like shift to more measurable forms of media and more, more sort of green eye shade evaluations of marketing spend. And to your point, when you advertise on Amazon, you, you can, it's knowable if that, that ad resulted in a sale, whereas a lot, you know, a lot of other advertising vehicles, it's not. And so the KPIs have to be more, more wishy-washy and and frankly like there's a lot of ugliness in the whole digital advertising space about like when you measure things like impressions uh how accurate those measurements even are and is it a bot that's seeing the ad or a person and is the ad below the 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 fold and never you know visible to a human eye and all these sorts of things come into play and so the the ads on the retailer site uh, you know, certainly have an advantage in measurability, but I actually think it's it's two other factors that are really driving it. Like the the top line one you mentioned, like hey, if Google has been a traditionally effective uh, way for me to advertise, and particularly PLAs have been really effective, and then you start to hear that wait, fifty five percent of all um, search traffic starts on Amazon, not Google. You'd say, man, my portfolio of of PLAs should you know, 55% of those dollars should be going to Amazon, not to Google. Um, and so you're, you're starting to see brands want to make that shift. 
And then you have this third problem for the account teams that are particularly responsible for selling their own products on Amazon. Uh, there's a Amazon has this great virtuous cycle for, for Amazon, which is when you launch a new product on Amazon, the only way to find it is in search, right? Like unlike a lot of other e-commerce sites where where about 90% of the users are, are using the nav and maybe 10% are using search, Amazon is almost exclusively a search-based uh, experience. And the only way to show up in search is to have a high velocity of click-through on your product. And when you're a new product, you don't have a high velocity of click-through. So you you literally have to seed the system by buying ads to improve your visibility so people click through to your, your product detail page so that you can get some volume so that you can start organically showing up in search. And so, yeah. it, you know, it almost necessitates that you make that that investment. And what's, what's been interesting to me is that, you know, a brand uh, spending money on marketing, like they tend to spend money out of a couple budgets. And so usually the first thing you see is that there's a sales team at, you know, Procter and Gamble, or, or, you know, you pick any brand, um, and they're responsible for selling the family care products through Amazon. And they have a sales budget to invest in promotions on Amazon that help them sell, just like they have a promotion budget to invest in in-store shopper marketing at Walmart to help them sell. And, and so those are the guys that originally are investing in these, these AMS services to have their products show up so that they can start getting that search visibility. But there's a much bigger marketing budget that's owned by the CMO. And that's the, the sort of brand building general awareness budget. Um, and that's usually the budget that's invested digitally in things like, like Google. And so the interesting trend we're seeing is a lot of brands have always had a presence on AMS um, and, and other retailers advertising platforms from those account teams, but now it's becoming much more common that you're seeing the the CMO allocate part of the brand building budget uh, to showing up on these retailer sites. And while Amazon's the by far the largest network in the U.S., uh, the Walmart advertising network, WMX is very big. Target has a meaningful network. Um, Best Buy has a meaningful network. Like almost every big site, there there's a separate team. Uh, that's called the site monetization team, and they're focused on on selling these marketing products to brands that that uh, you know want visibility on those sites. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious if this is going to start to show up in you know a lot of the ad tech kind of companies' results, um, especially Google, because it does seem to be this you know the the kind of got a straw in the Google milkshake. So it'll be interesting to see if if we start to see an impact, or maybe Google's just big and diversified enough it doesn't. You know, it's not material or something, but uh, it'll, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And that we should, uh, if listeners are interested in this, maybe since we have two deep dive ideas, maybe we could get some listener feedback on, uh, you know, which one of these is most interesting. So we've got uh, Amazon marketing platforms and, and trends, and then we've got the B2B deep dives uh, as two topics there. Yeah, uh, good stuff. And I, I guess one other thing I would say there, uh, one thing holding Amazon back a little bit at the moment is uh, their ad platforms are not nearly as advertiser friendly as uh, you know, someone who's who that's their core business like Google, right? So there's lots of friendly APIs that all the ad tech guys can build products that talk to on things like like Google and the the technology you can use to interface and execute your ads on on Amazon and and you know to an even greater extent on all the other retailer sites is is 
relatively immature. So that feels like the one area that needs to change for it really to catch fire. Yeah, and we've we've had several guests on the show say that they're they've got pretty big kind of aspirations there. So I, I think they'll they'll get there. <laughs> there's there's zero doubt that they could solve that problem and likely will. Yeah. Cool. So that's it on Amazon. Um, you think anyone's going to slow those guys down? Uh, I, well, so I guess it depends on what you mean by slow them down. I I uh, <laughs> I, I certainly think that that they're going to continue to to grow and capture more market share. Um, and so if you're if you're picking a winner, it's it's clearly got to be them. But I don't think it is a one horse race. Um, and so I do think there's some other retailers that you know are in a position to carve out pretty big pies for themselves. And uh, uh, the the one you think of the most and the one that, you know, frankly at the moment has a much bigger pie than Amazon uh, is our friends at Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. So Walmart had their first quarter earnings out and uh, you know, I, I think uh, most of the reaction I've seen has been really positive. So some folks are saying they're out of the woods and others are calling it green shoots. So kind of a, you know, different levels of enthusiasm, but mostly enthusiasm. The the one metric everyone's really excited about, and I, I thought was pretty awesome, is e-commerce was up 63% year over year. Um, so, you know, as a reminder, e-commerce, uh, according to Comscore, is growing about 15%. Maybe I think it's 14 desktop and two or three mobile. So that may, may be nudging a little north of that, but, but call it 15 to surrounding. Um, and Amazon consistently as a company grows in the mid twenties. Uh, and then if you take out a bunch of pieces, the EGM part of Amazon, um, and specifically the, the marketplace are growing typically around 30%. So twice the rate of e-commerce. So here you have something growing four times the rate of e-commerce, which is, which is great. Now, Walmart hasn't been consistently doing that. They've been kind of all over the map here. Um, so, you know, one skeptic, uh, you know, one skeptical thing people could say is, well, you know, last year they didn't have jet. So is this all inorganic growth? And several of the Wall Street analysts have taken some of Walmart's comments where they gave them enough data to back into it. And, you know, the um, the ones I've said have estimated that the organic growth was 40 percent year over year. So still a, a really good showing uh, ahead of Amazon's growth rate. And then when you layer in jet, which, you know, the delta there is 23 percent, um, you know, you get to a, a a pretty significant growth number. So, you know, I think it's too early to call that the strategy is working, but there's definitely, uh, this is better than minus 5%. Absolutely. And, and, you know, a, a, a huge warning sign for everyone else in the industry. Uh, let's, let's pretend the analysts are, are for sure right. And it's 40% organic growth. So the whole e-commerce industry is growing at 15% by far the largest player in the e-commerce industry that alone is, is like 30 or 40% of the industry is growing at 30%. Um, and this, and like most likely the second largest player in the e-commerce industry is growing right now at 40%. Um, so that actually does not leave a heck of a lot of growth for everyone else to, to get to that 15%. Yeah. There's, there's two kind of outcomes. If, if the industry keeps growing at 15, then online people will lose share. But what I actually think is going to happen is I think we're in kind of a golden age of e-commerce where, I think, you know, and this ties into the Mahalageddon theme, uh, I think we're going to actually see the entire e-commerce uh, sea rise, and we're going to start to bump up from that 15% we've had for years and start to get up towards the 20%. That That's kind of, yeah, I think that's what's going to happen because, and then the 
um, you know, what, what that'll do is the percentage of sales that are online is going to start accelerating. It's been kind of, if you look at the Comscore data and the Census Bureau data, it's been this kind of like straight line for a while. And it, I, it feels like we're at the elbow of the curve. So, you know, I, I think this between Q1 and Q4, I think it'd be, I think we'll start to see the an, a really interesting inflection point there. I, I think that's totally possible. I, I like to think of it as there, there really isn't an e-commerce industry. Like there are a bunch of product categories that are each at different places in their sort of maturity or adoption curve. And in general, across all those segments, we see once they get about 20% of their, their sales online, like it becomes a, a major disruption for the, the incumbent uh, model. And so I, I, I think there are just a heck of a lot more retail segments that are, that are rapidly approaching that, that 20% threshold. And so like, I, I do think that you can, um, that you could imagine a bunch of those crossing over that threshold and driving the the overall industry average up. Mm-hmm. A couple other just tidbits. Um, so for the first time, they disclosed a GMV number, and that was up sixty nine percent. So when when revenue grows slower than GMV, that means your take rate is going down. I, I don't think that's enough of a delta to be concerned. Usually, that could be explained in mix. So all these marketplaces have. You know, uh, a different mix, a different take rate for electronics, let's say, is usually sub 10 percent. And then something like jewelry is north of 15 percent. Um, but it's, it is an interesting kind of trend to watch over time, um, which could indicate that, you know, there's some price pressure there or something like that. Um, same store sales improved 1.4 percent in the physical stores. So, so that's good. And, and that beat uh, uh, analyst estimates. Yeah, yeah. So that that was uh, an improvement, and you know, uh, Walmart's been on about a year journey. Uh, maybe it's eighteen months where they've been investing in stores and hiring people and raising their wages and cleaning up the stores and really focusing on you know the day to day blocking and tackling at the store level. And that's a an indication that that seems to be working. Uh, and as we you know later in the show, we'll talk about some of the other same store sales numbers out there. And one point four percent is pretty enviable right now. Uh, it's got a got a plus sign in front of it, which I think uh, many retailers would would really like to have on their same store sales. Um, the quality of the earnings growth improved, which is good. Um, and then one thing I, I always measure on this, and and this is I've been being this drum for for literally fifteen years, is at this point in time Amazon has you know over three hundred fifty five million SKUs. So when it comes to selection, no one comes close to Amazon. It's that marriage of the one P and three P model that does it. Uh, Walmart seems to have gotten religion around this and uh, it was widely reported that they went from 10 million SKUs a year ago to now they have 50 million SKUs. Still a drop in the bucket, kind of one-seventh of Amazon, but you know, to go up 5x uh, in a year is is pretty impressive when for, you know, what, let, let's guess 15 years, and you know, Walmart has been kind of in single-digit millions and here in the last couple of years they've, they've really started to, to get very serious about adding selection. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it seems to me I mean, when Amazon or when Walmart first launched a marketplace, like, you know, they, they didn't get immediate traction and they were, you know, they were kind of uh, judicious about who they let on to the marketplace. And I know the sellers like really complained about uh, the the platform and the 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 tools and how many SKUs you could onboard and all these sorts of things. Uh, when you see that jump from 10 million to 50 million, uh, my assumption is that they fixed a bunch of those problems and that they're they're much more seller friendly than they than they uh, were originally. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, 
couple of other little things in the Walmart world. Uh, there's a great store concept that I can't remember if we've ever talked about on the show uh, called Story, or, or formal name, This Is Story, which is a, a retail space in New York City. And it's kind of an interesting concept. They, they uh, are a great mix of commerce and content. Um, they come up with a theme every uh, month or two, and they redesign the, the retail space based on that theme. So the theme could be a, a category of product like health or, you know, measured self or innovation or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, they design a, a complete retail space around that theme. And so when you go there from month to month, you, you wouldn't expect to find the same products. You'd expect a completely different sort of rich, immersive experience. Um, and uh, from their original concept, they've now been able to sponsor a number of these stories. So they've had brands come in and say, hey, we want you to develop a whole store concept around our, our particular brand. And this month's uh, story debuted a new, a new concept in the space, and it's, it's Jet.com Fresh. Yeah, and you and I have been to several shop.org meetings at, at that store. It's really, it's really cool. It's kind of a... Uh, you know, it takes curation to the the nth degree, I think, because the store is essentially just wipe and replace every. What does she do every two or three months? Is it quarterly or every month? What What's the cycle? I think it tends to be about every two months, but I don't two think months, it, yeah. it's like on a fixed schedule. Yeah, yeah. So, um, are you going to go? I think you're going to be in New York soon. Are you going to go stop by? Yeah. I, so I haven't been to this concept yet. It just opened. Uh, I think my next trip to New York is uh, maybe end of next week or two weeks from now. And so I will definitely look forward to checking it out. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to tell our non-New York listeners about it after that. Yeah. And then uh, one other piece of interesting news, Walmart news uh, this week is that Walmart uh, filed for a number of uh, Internet of Things patents uh, in the commerce space. So like, everyone's certainly familiar with dash buttons and dash auto replenishment. Uh, Walmart has patented a number of sensors that uh, detect uh, when a consumer is likely in need of replenishment. So it's sort of implicit uh, replenishment instead of explicit. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a toothpaste holder that can tell you when you're out of toothpaste. Um, but the other interesting play was some of these sensors are designed to tell you when the product you bought, the the perishable product you bought is about to expire. So it could warn you that your, your milk has expired or your cheese or something like that. I don't know if cheese ever expires now that I think about it. Uh, but you get the I've had cheese expire. Yeah. Yes. It grows uh, uh, this green stuff on it. That green stuff is cheese. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think it's penicillin. No, that would be bread. Never mind. Uh, <coughs> but in any case, uh, interesting that, that uh, Walmart is investing in that, in that IP space. Uh, we've talked about, Internet of Things and auto replenishment on this show a couple times, um, and it, it's very likely that five or ten years down the road, sort of forty percent of the goods that you you buy in that grocery store today are likely items that magically show up at your door because your house knows you needed them. So uh, I think the the retailers that are investing, retailers and brands that are investing in that technology now are are wise to do so. 
Yeah. Yeah. One, one news item to kind of um, break out of the, the Walmart side um, that we were remiss in covering. Uh, and so we had this flurry of activity there where Walmart bought a bunch of folks. And um, between shows, uh, one of our guests' company was acquired. So Samsonite acquired eBags. Uh, one of the co-founders, Peter Cobb, has been on here. And we've also had John Norman. We've had two of the, the three or four founders on, on the show. And the uh, acquirer. Yeah, yeah, and we've had Samsonite. So, so yeah, I don't think it's a huge stretch to say that we basically put this deal together. But anyway, um, so <laughs> it was acquired for 105 million, and that's a great outcome for everyone. And and you know this trend of um, brands uh, accelerating their digital footprint by buying e-commerce players is is fascinating. And it's a uh, uh, shout out to our friends at eBags and congratulations on that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to see, uh, like, obviously, eBags has a lot of uh, uh, digital expertise. Um, Samsonite now also owns Tumi. So it'll be interesting to see how they're able to leverage all those those new digital chops uh, across, like, you know, both of those storage brands. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, also in news, uh, so we're, you know, Walmart's usually one of the last folks to report. So we're kind of heading towards the end of the Q1 reporting cycle. And um, I saw a really cool chart where uh, one of our uh, joint Twitter friends, Ryan Craver, uh, has been tracking this. And uh, what was neat about the chart is he shows kind of graphically same store sales trends. Uh, and, you know, this, what's fascinating about this chart is, you know, he has, let's see, he has kind of grouped uh, what I would call value-oriented retailers or their counterparts. So things like Burlington Coat Factory, which is a discounter, um, Nordstrom Rack, the Nordstrom Rack piece of Nordstrom, Ross Shoes, TJ Maxx, Dollar General, some of the dollar stores. Uh, then there's a grouping for department stores, and then there's a grouping for wholesale clubs. And, um, you know, it is a tale of, of three cities. So wholesale clubs and generally the discount guys are doing uh, well with positive same store sales results and department stores are doing really, really poorly with, with severely negative same store sales. Um, so we'll put this in the show notes uh, or check either uh, my handle or Jason's on Twitter. And well, I think we both retweeted this so you can see it there, but it's a really interesting graphical display of, of you know, this where consumers are spending their money essentially and, and the feast and famine that's going on in offline retail right now. For sure, uh, it it uh, I mean it plays perfectly into the the retail Armageddon that we've talked about. That like you know particularly those department stores are are super distressed as consumers are making different decisions about where to shop, and increasingly it's at those those more value oriented retailers. Yeah, and one of the um, you know one of the the uh, folks that did not make it uh, here in the last week or so was uh, a retailer oriented towards teens, so a mall-based retailer oriented towards uh, teens called Rue 21. Um, they have filed for bankruptcy, so uh, remains to be seen if they'll be closing all their stores or what's going to happen to that bankruptcy, but usually it does mean store closures. Yeah, and uh, it uh, I mean, we've talked about a number of the, the earlier bankruptcies. Uh, there was some interesting buzz on Twitter uh, one of the bankruptcies was Gander Mountain. Um, and uh, what I found kind of interesting, that Gander was bought out of bankruptcy by Camping World. Um, and the reason Camping World might be interesting to some listeners is the CEO of Camping World uh, is the star of Retail Park uh, Profit, a show on CNBC. Have you ever uh, watched it, Scott? 
I love that show. Yeah. So it's uh, Marcus. Leon's, Marcus Leonsis. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, Marcus has been super active on Twitter and he's been super transparent. Uh, Gander had, I, if memory serves, like 60 stores and Camper's World is going to reopen like 20 of those stores. And so, you know, he's been like sharing real time data on Twitter as they make the decision as to which stores they can reopen versus which ones. Uh, they they choose not to. I saw that, and it's really confusing because the stores all say the store is closing and we're liquidating everything. But then he is saying, no, 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 the store, yes, we're selling all the stuff, but the store is going to stay open. So I guess they're going to, um, you know, they have their own supplier relationships and they'll go replenish the stores. And then they're also rebranding them. But the brand is like, instead of it being Gander Mountain, it's just Gander Outdoor. Um, but he wanted to create a bunch of distance between the old brand, but it's like the same essential name. So I, you know, not, yeah. not hundred percent tracking what some of the no, things I think you got it exactly there. right. I think he did not buy the inventory, the distressed inventory in the stores. So the yeah. liquidator that did has the right to sell all the stuff out of all those stores. And then the stores he reopens, he's going to have to replenish, uh, to your point, presumably using the, the campers world supply chain that he already has. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting if you can make that work because it's, you know, it's certainly very confusing to consumers. If, uh, you know, it's pretty in the weeds to try to explain that to them. Oh, for sure. I just found the thing interesting. You know, if this hap- this this kind of thing plays out all the time when retailers go bankrupt and it played out, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago when, when Circuit City closed. Um, but, like, if you worked in a Circuit City store, you'd have no idea if you had any potential for a new job or what was going to happen. And, you know, you'd... You'd be waiting until you read something in a newspaper, and now you've got like all this this real time information. You jump on Twitter, and the the you know uh, Marcus is out there tweeting lists of stores and saying like, "Hey, we're going to hire people in that store." So I just I, just, yeah. I think that's a, a another interesting uh, ramification of the of digital disruption. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it is super helpful for the employees to to have some some you know, real time information on what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so speaking of digital disruption, another big, uh, digital event this year, uh, or this week is, uh, Google IO. Yeah. What, what'd you think about that? I, I kind of, uh, I was not able to watch it real time and I read several of the summaries and, you know, it, it sounds like Google went from, you know, the, uh, in their early days being kind of search first and owning search to then mobile first. And now everyone's saying they're AI first. So, um, the AI buzz was a plenty with Google IO and, you know, you, you hear all this buzz and you get excited and you're like, wow, what's it going to be? And it's like, you know, uh, this thing you can hold up your camera and it'll decode something in the real world. And Google's had several iterations of this and they've all been kind of, you know, nice demos, but not like, game-changing. So uh, I don't know. I, I felt like it was kind of a lot of hype around AI and not like a lot of real use cases. So it's so interesting to see if, if something was life-changing for you. Yeah. Uh, well, so certainly nothing I would call life-changing, but I do think it's interesting. Um, AI is one of these double-edged swords, and we, we for sure uh, need to do a deep dive in the near future on, on AI for commerce because it is an overhyped buzz thing, right? And And so, you know, all the big Big, reta- uh, big, big uh, technology companies are talking about becoming AI first, and and you know certainly that was the big play from from Google I/O. And you know my my argument is no one should be excited or buy something because it is or isn't AI. Like AI is not an outcome, 
and you know people are like i need some of that good ai so so we'll 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 talk about that a little bit on the deep dive but i do think it is true um that the the ai is enabling a bunch of uh, much more interesting user experiences and much broader uh, digital user experiences than have been uh, possible heretofore. So, so I do think uh, AI is on the cusp of enabling huge um, systematic changes to how we shop across a bunch of categories, and I am excited about that. And you know the. I would I would encourage people to get much more excited about the specific use cases that are likely to affect them and why they're going to be a better experience than that it it has the AI label or doesn't have the AI label. Um, so I think it'd be fun uh, to do a show where we talk about what some of those near term and far term use cases are. But I know one person that's in my camp on this is uh, our our number one listener, Jeff Bezos. Ah, yeah, he is definitely big. So, uh, so it seems like we've got three possible deep dives. So, if you if you want to let us know your thoughts, uh, tweet at us. Or uh, I'm Scott Wingo, S C O T W I N G O, and uh, Jason is Retail Geek. Or go on our Facebook page and uh, let us know which of these deep dive topics is most interesting for you. So to recap, we have um, business kind of with a uh, flavor of Amazon business and what's going on there. Uh, we have uh, artificial intelligence, and then we have Amazon advertising and and that platform. So let us know what's interesting to you, uh, Jason. One big retailer that's been pretty active uh, here in the last week's news that we haven't talked about is Target. Have you been tracking all the? I don't even know if it's news. I think it's more like gossip at this point. Um, have you been tracking what's come out of Target and uh, and, and uh, interesting macro things going on there? I'd love to hear your take on. Yeah, so I I think there's some uh, gossip and some news. I think they also did have their earnings call this week, and uh, I did not write it down in the notes, so we're going from memory, so don't hold me to these numbers. Um, I think they basically uh, beat the analyst expectation, uh, but they definitely uh, had negative same-source sales. So I... In my head, I want to say that that the analysts were predicting they'd be down like three point seven percent, and they were only down like three point four percent or something like that. So uh, definitely not the you always want to beat analyst expectation, but ne- definitely not the kind of thing you claim victory on and and pound your chest about um, when you're just just uh, shrinking a little more slowly than the analyst thought. Less worse. Yes. Um, they also did announce pretty good e-commerce growth, I think also above that average. So again, from memory, I want to say they announced like 20% e-commerce growth. Um, but it's interesting, like all of those things that target are in this backdrop of news we've talked about in the last several months that, uh, you know, target has really curtailed a lot of their forward looking initiatives and programs. So they, you know, they had these stores of the future that were half built and they, they announced that they were closing them. Uh, they had this big, uh, goldfish initiative and, uh, this, this innovation officer, West Stringfeld that, you know, they're working on all these innovative things and they hired a bunch of people to build them and they, they abruptly pulled the plug on all those things, uh, and parted ways with West. Uh, they, their chief digital officer, you know, they, uh, left the company maybe four or five months ago, their chief innovation officer, Casey Carl left the company this month. Um, so it, it really feels like 
Target is investing all of their chips in their near-term fundamentals. Like they're they're trying to improve the guest experience in the stores, and they're they're all in on uh, winning in these five signature categories that they're focused on in store. Um, at the expense of a lot of these these other initiatives, and like obviously their their results sort of belittle why they you know they don't have unlimited amount of money to invest in all these initiatives. Yeah. So, so it's going to be interesting to see how that played out. But in that context, uh, we we got some uh, some rumors from our, our friend Jason Delray that he wrote an article about uh, today. And uh, that was uh, that they announced that they are uh, selling Casper inside of Target stores. And that, that's not a rumor. That, that's news. Um, they're not actually, they're selling the mattresses online, but they're selling a lot of the accessories in the store. So, so Casper will have a footprint in the store. Um, and if you want to buy a mattress, you can buy it direct from Casper, but you can also now buy it from target.com and they'll, they'll ship it direct to your home. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with Casper, you know, they, they have this clever, uh, combination spring foam mattress that they're able to, compressed down enough that they can actually ship it in a UPS box. Um, and so this this uh, is kind of in line with a lot of other moves we've seen Target. They like to surprise and delight their guests by having these popular brands that you wouldn't necessarily expect to have at Target. And so originally that was like designers that were too high in for, that you might have thought were too high in for Target. But more recently it's been some of these digitally native brands that are showing up in Target. So it was Harry's Razors and now Casper, uh, and what uh, Jason's article says is that Target tried to go a lot further than just carrying them, that they actually tried to acquire Casper, um, and that uh, when that was unsuccessful, that, that they've taken some sort of investment in Casper. So that's interesting. Yeah, and I think the number that was banned, you know, thrown around is a billion. Do you have you heard what Casper's revenue run rate is? I, I remember when they crossed like a hundred million. Um, maybe it was two years ago. I don't know if I've heard an update on that. Yeah, I don't have a number in my head. Um, like uh, for sure, they they got to like a hundred million in like their second year of existence. So I know there was a lot of talk about that, but I I don't know um, where they're at right now. And it's interesting for Target to take an investment in them, right? So. Uh, if if I don't know if that makes Target a majority shareholder or a minority shareholder or what sort of you know board seats and all those sorts of issues, um, but you could imagine uh, like does Casper sell on Amazon today and would they continue to sell on Amazon with with Target as a a majority board member? Would any other retailer be willing to carry Casper with Target as a board member and might see sales velocity on those on the, on those in those other retailers stuff like that like it can get messy for a, a a retailer to have an investment uh in a brand that they're not exclusive to yeah and a lot of times the the thinking goes if i'm going to make these guys a rock star and i can't own it then i want to participate in that rock star creation cycle um so that's probably what's going on from target side and they probably wouldn't do the deal without investment and then there's also, so that's the offense part of it. And there's probably a defense that kind of says, 
And, and some of these things can come with, you know, pretty real meaty right of first refusal kind of things so that you keep someone else from buying it or you, you have at least a bite of the apple. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of that was in there. And, and you know, Casper um, must have really wanted the distribution or, or felt like it was worth it uh, to accept the investment and any kind of you know, uh, other entanglements that came along with it. Yeah. And that does, you know, it mirrors Casper is a, a prototypical digitally native brand. Um, the, uh, you, you think about someone like Bonobos, right? Like very similar. Uh, they cut a deal to get distribution. Although their primary channel of distribution is direct, they cut a deal to get distribution in Nordstrom, and they allowed Nordstrom to take an investment in them. And so in that way, this, this deal doesn't look so different from that. And, of course, Bonobos is sort of aggressively open guide shops as showrooms, Casper has some uh, sh- some guide shops, uh, or not guide shops, but Casper has some showrooms. Uh, so it feels like it's following a, a a a pretty common playbook for these kinds of companies at this point. Yeah, and I would almost say it feels like uh, from the outside. I don't have any inside information on this. It it feels like a game of music chairs is accelerating. So, um, you know, we saw Walmart scoop up a couple of these really quickly, and the rumor, uh, persistent rumor, is Bonobos is going to Walmart. So then, if you're Target, you're kind of like, hmm, you know, I I need to get in a chair here. Uh, and we we also have heard rumors that they were going to pick up Boxed, uh, which is more of that Amazon pantry style kind of competitor. So so I think what you're seeing is you know you, you start to look at the digitally native vertical brands that are out there at scale. You got Dollar Shave Club has been picked up, so now you have Harry's uh, and you've got Casper. Those are those two are the very largest ones. Modcloth is a lot of times mentioned in that discussion, and Bonobos. Those two are off the table. Um, so you're really left with a pretty small number of scale over a hundred million dollar um, companies there. Uh, am I, am I leaving any off? Would you put stitch fix in there? I don't know if that counts. Yeah. They're a slightly different animal, but they're like even, you know, probably larger in scale at this point. I think there was some, they, they publicly announced and you know, we, we, have, I can only take their word for it at this point, but they publicly announced that they're like 760 or 780 million in, in annual sales. So that's, that's a pretty good size company if that's true yeah that feels like a four or five billion kind of a a, a swing at bat there so that's pretty serious i think exactly um and so some of these might be a little more digestible than than stitch fix at this point uh i i do think you're right like there's you know uh, a diminishing number of these i think there is another interesting um play where these guys are playing some defense uh we're, we're you know the uh, pace of innovation is so fast now that all these companies that have disrupted industries um, are not getting a very long honeymoon before they themselves are getting disrupted. So you think of Dollar Shave Club as disrupting uh, Gillette and Schick. Um, and, uh, you know, you could talk about the cool video and the the subscription service and all that. The real reason Dollar Shave Club disrupted uh Gillette is because Gillette sells $7 razor blades and Dollar Shave Club sells $1 razor blades. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you've got Dorco, who's the razor blade supplier to Dollar Shave Club, launching their own uh, subscription service and selling 20 cent razor blades. So mm. if you're Dollar Shave Club, you're like, hey, wait a minute. Like I was the young, fun disruptor with the, the shockingly low price, and now I've got guys below me. And the same thing has happened to Warby Parker. There are a bunch of uh, direct-to-consumer 
frame manufacturers that are, you know, coming in at even much lower price points than Warby Parker. And the, this mattress industry is particularly competitive. So, you know, I, Casper wasn't even the first. They were really, I would argue, the first one to get sort of mainstream awareness. Um, but there, there are five or six, uh, significant players in this new digital direct to consumer mattress space. And if you're, you're Casper, you know, you, you would have had a pretty big incentive to get, you know, the, the kind of visibility and distribution you get through, through Target to differentiate themselves from that competition. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, um, uh, uh, an interesting data source CB insights had shown when the rumors about Casper came out that uh, I think there's three or four other mattress companies that are actually in the neighborhood of sales as Casper. So, uh, you know, target must be really enamored with the brand and, and think that there's some um, synergy there with their, their buyer, their customers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, uh, it's a fun spectator sport to watch all this stuff playing out right now. Uh, so, Scott, we are coming close to time, uh, but I know you have a pretty cool event coming up. Do you want to remind the listeners about it? Yeah, yeah. The um, you know one of the biggest shows of the year for e-commerce is the Internet Retailer Conference and Exhibition, which is commonly abbreviated IRCE. And for the last five years, I've been doing a Amazon workshop there called Amazon and Me. So I'll be at Internet Retailer. Would love to meet up with any listeners that happen to be there. Uh, Channel Advisor will have a booth, and I'll try to spend some time there. I, uh, uh, I'm i a bad uh, founder and don't know the booth number, but I'm sure it will be in the guide there. <laughs> uh, so I'll be at the booth and look forward to seeing you there. And then I'm also speaking at a venture capital uh, conference uh, about what's going on. Uh, in That's in D.C., and that's June 7th. So look forward to seeing everyone as I'm starting to hit the road here in the early summer. Very cool. I love it that you are potentially traveling more than me. Yeah, yeah. I may have to. I may be able to do a trip report, so it's going to be pretty darn exciting. Uh, I tried to be all cool and find the booth number for you while you were talking, and I, I found you, you've exhibited at too many IRCEs. <laughs> yeah, we've been at it for for quite a while. Exactly. So we'll have to put that in the show notes. And uh, with that, it has happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Uh, so we certainly want to thank everyone for listening and encourage you to write us a review on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. And we'd love it if you'd come to our Facebook page and give us some feedback about uh, which of those deep dives would be interesting to you. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.